Just for a moment, imagine your community became another Ferguson, or Minneapolis, or Louisville, or any American community where police killed African Americans under questionable circumstances. How would you react? How would your city react? How would your government react? These are the questions that we will explore in the coming weeks in Color Lines, from Philip to Floyd, a podcast exploring the American tragedy of race, police shootings, and the search for justice. In 1990, the town of Teaneck, New Jersey, a community renowned as a national model of racial unity and peace, became embroiled in a confrontation over race and dignity and fairness after a white police officer shot and killed a black teenager. Riots broke out. The town engaged in an examination over its racial policies from the police department to the school system. Were the efforts of Teaneck, New Jersey, dating back to the 1950s to build racial harmony real? Why didn't those efforts prevent another tragedy of police killing an African-American under questionable circumstances? Journalist Mike Kelly's book, Color Lines, investigates Teaneck's history and what the shooting exposed about the racial dilemma that America faced then and continues to face today. Now, with Mike and some of the most prominent voices in civil rights and police reform, from U.S. Senator Cory Booker to Congresswoman Karen Bass to the Reverend Al Sharpton and others, we're looking back to try to find the best way to move forward. How did Teaneck change? Why didn't the lessons learned from the police shooting of Philip Pinnell in Teaneck teach America how to avoid the murder of George Floyd and others? Philip Pinnell was shot over 30 years ago, but the details you're about to hear could be today, unless we make changes. And you tell me, could this happen in your town? A call came into the police department. A resident of in the northeast section of town said, I think there's a boy in a red jacket outside my house with a group of other African-American kids. And I think this boy has a gun. And so the police department sent out a call and uh, a police officer named Gary Spath responded. At this point, uh, Philip Pinnell, who had the gun, uh, the, the so-called boy in the red jacket, he had walked with a group of friends to an elementary school. Oddly enough, ironically enough, perhaps, it was the, the elementary school that was the first school to be desegregated in Teaneck. Um, Gary Spath uh, uh, drove his police car onto the field next to the school where the kids were. He was followed by another police officer by the name of Wayne Blanco. Both police officers got out of their cars. They ordered the kids to stand in a line and they started uh, to frisk the kids. And as the second police officer, Wayne Blanco, grabbed Philip's coat, uh, Philip started to run. And Wayne called out, Gary, he has a gun. And Philip started to run. 
around the school uh, to to an, another part of the neighborhood, and Gary chased him. Philip ran into a backyard that was fenced in, and he was trapped essentially. Gary fired one shot and missed Philip, and then he fired another shot and hit him square in the back and killed him. Did the cops physically see the gun? No, they didn't. The testimony in the trial, which took place later, Wayne Blanco said that he felt a gun in Philip's coat pocket, but neither police officer saw the gun. Did they ever find it? Yes. And, and I've seen the gun. I've held the gun in my hands. Uh, what began for me was, was really a journalistic journey. I, I decided, like so many in the town, I didn't believe half the rumors I was hearing, and I didn't trust half the facts that were being presented by either side. And so I decided to dive into this. And it became really a, a five-year journey on my, on my, on my own. And part of that journey was actually determining exactly what kind of a gun was Philip carrying and what did it look like. And after, after all was said and done, I actually drove to Trenton, New Jersey and went into a uh, evidence room at the, at the state attorney general's offices and actually held the gun in my hands. And do you think this gun looked threatening enough to be shot at by a police? Well, yes and no. It was a hollowed out starter's pistol, the kind of starter's pistol that you would use at a track meet. It had been hollowed out to fire 22 caliber bullets. Was it an accurate gun? I don't know. When I saw the gun, the handle was broken. It, it, it appeared to be in pieces. Um, so it was, it was not the kind of gun you would, you would see you know, in the hands of a police officer, for example. Um, but it was a gun and, uh, it was tested by ballistics, uh, experts and it was, it was, um, it was the kind of gun you could fire a bullet from. Um, was it, was it a, a lethal weapon? I don't know, but it was a gun. And do you think that Gary Spath knew this when he was chasing Philip? No, not, he did not keep in mind what Gary Spath had in his mind as he was approaching this situation. I think this is important. He got a call on his radio about a boy in a red jacket with a gun. Go get out. So he doesn't know if this boy has a, you know, an automatic weapon or he has a toy gun. He doesn't know. Uh, he's told that somebody has a gun. Um, he pulls up to the scene he orders all the kids. There were about a half a dozen kids with Philip there that day. He orders them to stand put and stand in a line. And as his partner uh, is, is, is basically frisking some of the kids, he grabs the coat of Philip and feels what he believes to be a gun in the pocket. And at that point, Philip runs. Now, this is important because Philip had a juvenile record and he knew uh, that if he was caught in such a situation where he was carrying this this weapon, that he might be actually sent to a juvenile uh, prison of sorts. Um, so so he ran and tried to get away, but he ran into a backyard of a home that was fenced in, and he was trapped. And uh, there are 
there's a difference of opinion as to exactly what Philip was doing when he was killed. I was able to determine through forensics and, and the autopsy, and I actually watched the videotape of the autopsy, that Philip's hands were above his head as he, uh, as he, when he reached that backyard. What Gary Spath says he saw was something very different. Spath said he, he thought Philip was trying to turn and shoot him. The evidence indicates that Philip did not have his hand in his pocket, anywhere near his pocket, where he would have the gun. In fact, the gun was found in Philip's, Philip's pocket and had not been fired. Um, and the way the bullet entered Philip's body and the kinds of bones that it hit indicates that Philip's hands were above his head. Were they above his head, uh, you know, over his head, you know, uh, stretched above his head? We don't know. But his hands were in such a position that he would not be reaching for his gun to shoot a police officer. And secondarily, it's absolutely clear, absolutely clear from the forensics and the autopsy report that Philip was shot square in the back. He was not facing the officer to try to shoot him. You don't think Philip should have died that night? I do not. Uh, I don't think uh, Philip should have been killed. Simple as that. Could the shooting of Philip Pinnell have been avoided? Could technology be the savior? Or will it be the changing of laws? The Reverend Al Sharpton has his own opinion. I would uh, think if there had been cell phone and a video of Gary Spam chasing Philip Pinnell in the backyard and shooting him, I would like to think it may have been a different verdict. But I remember in 1991, there was video on Rodney King getting beat, and they acquitted those people. Uh, Eric Garner, there was video of him saying, uh, I can't breathe 11 times. They never even prosecuted that. You want to keep believing that if people could just see what we see and feel what we feel, it would be different. And I guess that's why we keep driving that. Maybe this one didn't, but the next one will. Uh, but I want to believe that if they had seen uh, the video, it would have been different. But there's been cases where they have seen the video and it wasn't different, which is why we need to strengthen the laws and have more honest conversations. I don't think all police are wrong. I don't even think most police are wrong. But you can't in decades say every time the police was right, every time. I think we keep having them because we've not shown police in this country that they will be held accountable. How do you uh, stop uh, crime around a lot of young people? They have these programs like Scared Straight. You show kids that you will be perk walk. You will be handcuffed. You will go to jail. Until police see people stripped of the uniform, handcuffed, and perk walk, if you have unjustified killing, they won't stop. Because there's something that every time you acquit a policeman or don't prosecute a policeman that's wrong, you are telling them you can get away with anything, no matter how bad and vicious you are. And that, I think, has to end. I see those that are wrong, not those that are not wrong or those that are even gray area, but those that are clearly wrong. When policemen see that, 
uh, I think that's when they're going to say, wait a minute, I ain't doing that. That's one of the reasons why with this George Floyd Policing, Justice and Policing Act that we're pushing now, it has already passed the House of Representatives and we are hoping to get it through the Senate. It deals with qualified immunity where you can actually not only sue the cities and the counties, but sue the policemen. If a policeman know that if I'm gonna chase a guy out in his backyard and shoot him like Gary Spass, then I could not the city pay the family, but I could lose my house and my car. They think twice before he runs down that backyard. When he leaves home in the morning, kisses his wife goodbye in the kitchen, going to work, she says, now be careful because we don't need to lose the house. It changes the exposure of accountability. And that's what I think we need. The courtrooms in America are almost surreal. When a white police officer is charged with killing a black victim, oftentimes juries are tainted, usually by the media and talking heads online. We will explore the Philip Pinnell trial, and you'll see the similarities in the George Floyd trial, even though this trial took place 30 years ago. The courtroom was like a scene, uh, uh, almost of theatrical proportions. You have to imagine this. This was a small courtroom at the Bergen County Courthouse. And you know something, as I mentioned in my book, we think of courtrooms and trials as being the place where all the facts are going to come together and we're going to pull together some credible version of the truth. And that was the great hope here. But we ran into problems almost from the get-go. And, and we'll start, let's start with who showed up to watch the trial. Well, every day in the trial, we had several rows of officers in their uniforms, all of, for the most part, white officers, occasional African-American officer would show up, but for the most part, white officers showing up in their uniforms in the courtroom. And this was, uh, and, and, and the jury had to see this. And, but let's talk about the jury itself. The jury, there was, there was, a, uh, there was a real effort and, and a real almost demand by the African-American community that this, not, that this be an integrated jury. Well, that wasn't the case at all. It ended up being an all-white jury. And it, part of the problem there was the fact that just the jury pool in Bergen County, because Bergen County is, was so overwhelmingly white, there weren't that many African-Americans in the jury pool to begin with. But one by one, any African-American who was on the, you know, a member of the possible jury was bounced off by, by Gary Spath's defense lawyers. And so we ended up with an all-white jury. So that's how the trial began. And then there were all kinds of, uh, you know, theatrics in the, in the trial. For example, one of the first witnesses to testify, in fact, the first black man to testify, um, as he was testifying, uh, his testimony was on TV. Now, why was it on TV? Well, this this trial was one of the first trials to be broadcast by Court TV nationwide. This was long before the OJ trial. Uh, this trial uh, was a, was almost one of Court TV's initial experiments to try to broadcast a local trial that didn't have a lot of uh, celebrity uh, aspects to it, as say the OJ trial did but they, they wanted to broadcast this nationwide and they did. So people were watching this trial all over. So when this first uh, witness testified, someone in a, in a police department ran a criminal check on his background and discovered that he had a couple of outstanding warrants uh, uh, that had not been carried out. 
And so this person who was a dispatcher in a police department notified the Bergen County Sheriff's Department. And so picture this scene. This black man testifies in the trial before an all-white jury. He walks out of the courtroom. And as he walks out of the courtroom, he's met by sheriff's officers who arrest him for an outstanding warrant. It was like something out of a, a bad movie about Southern justice in the 1930s or 20s or something. And yet this was 1992 at this point in, in Bergen County, New Jersey. I want to go back to when you said that the courtroom was full of officers and a jury that was all white. And if we look back on this and if we walk in the courtroom, what is Philip's family thinking? And what is Officer Spath thinking? It was like one of those weddings, you know, where one family sits on one side of the court and the other family sits on the other. Well, that was what was happening in this courtroom. You had kind of a line of demarcation right down the middle of the, of the courtroom. And on one side, the police officers were sitting. And on the other side were Philip's family and some of their supporters. And it became a kind of, it, you could literally see the kind of black and white quality of the case right there in the audience. Philip's, Philip's family was very intimidated by this. Uh, they were very upset about it. They were understandably upset to begin with. Their son had died and they were trying to get some sense of, of how that happened and why it happened. So they were emotional to begin with, but here they were with an all white jury uh, in a largely white corner of New Jersey. And you know they were, they, I think they felt very alone in some cases. By the same token, Spath's uh, family had, had its own issues. They were intensely afraid that Gary Spath might be convicted. There were some serious questions about what he had done. No matter whether you had a white jury or, or, or what, there were major questions about why did Gary Spath feel that his life was so threatened that he had to shoot a 16-year-old boy in the back. And I want to dive into the, um, was he a teenager who testified? How old was uh, the first witness? He was in his 50s. Yeah, he was a man. He was a man. And so now he's been arrested. So what does this do for the case? Does he lose credibility with that testimony? I think so. I mean, I don't really know for certain. He wasn't a major witness anyway. He was kind of a scene setter type witness. But, um, but he was... He was a, nonetheless one of the first witnesses in the case. Now, the jury supposedly did not know he had been arrested. The jury was not supposed to be following news coverage, but I, I think the jury knew exactly what happened there uh, because it, it got quite a bit of coverage. Yeah, there was uh, quite a bit of attention that was going on in the town. Was the media coverage just within Teaneck or did it expand outside of it? Well, it was all over the, all over the country. We had reporters coming in from... Uh, from all over the country to cover this. The Washington Post was there. The New York Times was there. Uh, we were there, my own news, news organization, the Bergen Record. Uh, so there was a lot, plus there was court TV. And court TV, as I said, this was one of the first trials that they broadcast to a nationwide audience. So this, this trial was getting a lot of attention. Uh, and also to, you know, the way the news business works, uh, there wasn't a heck of a lot else going on in the world at that time. So this, 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 this was February 19, January, February 1992. And this was, this was commanding quite a bit of attention. 
because there was not a heck of a lot else going on. And as we've often seen in our past, whenever there is an issue about a white officer shooting or killing um, someone in the African-American community, oftentimes we're forced to have those discussions that we normally don't want to, which is when does race get involved and how do we approach it so that way these situations don't happen again? What discussions were being had in 1990 in Teaneck as well as around the country? Well, much of Teaneck was focused on the trial because what had happened until this point in time, you know, we talked a lot before about the different narratives that were emerging from the police side and from the black activist side. And people were having a difficult time trusting what were what exactly were the facts? What do we did we know? So a lot of people in Teaneck in particular were watching this trial because they wanted to find out what happened. Number one, did Philip have a gun? Did Gary Spath really shoot him in the back? And number three, why did Gary Spath do this? What exactly happened here? And so the trial, to its credit, they were able to, to really establish in, in a credible way, I think, what happened there that night, how Gary Spath arrived at the scene, how he got the emergency call, what, you know, what kind of gun was Philip carrying? The one question that they didn't really uh, bring forth was where did Philip get his gun? And I remember going to the prosecutors after the trial was over and I said, why didn't you introduce testimony on where Philip got his gun? And they said, they told me, they said it wasn't material to our case. And that was what spurred me was after the trial ended. That's when I jumped, when I dove into writing and researching my book. And that's what drove me to find out where did Philip get his gun? And, and, and I was able to reveal that in the book uh, that he got his gun from his mother. And what was Officer Spath charged with? He was charged with manslaughter. Serious charge, not murder, but it was a serious charge. He could have gone to prison had he been convicted. And how did Gary Spath's attorney argue his innocence? The chief uh, 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 element of Gary Spath's defense was that his life, he felt his life was in danger. In the United States, Qualified immunity is a legal principle that grants government officials performing discretionary functions immunity from civil suits unless the plaintiff shows that the official violated clearly established statutory or constitutional rights of which a reasonable person would have known. In the Philip Pinnell case, the officer said his life was in danger. When an officer says his life is in danger, it almost gives him the right to do anything even shoot someone. In our next episode, we will deal with the aftermath of the George Floyd decision.